0: Listening to Best Served Cold, a Bore millennials podcast, the Australian true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime.
1: Formerly Egypt's 36th most popular true crime podcast, hosted by Tama Jay and Laura Lees.
0: Sit down, relax, grab a drink, and enjoy this week's episode. Greetings. Hey. What's up?
1: What's up, Mang?
0: What's up? Welcome to the show. Yo yo.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow. Amazing. Great intro. Oh, Great intro. Thank
0: you. I tried really hard. Yeah. Welcome to Best of Cold, the true crime podcast where we drink wine, talk about crime.
1: Indeed we do.
0: How you doing out there? How you doing? How you feeling? Yeah, what's what's happening? going on? What's what? going on? Yeah. Tell me your life story. Have you
1: told your friends where you are? Have you have you texted your friends to let them know you've gotten home safe? You texted your mum to tell her you love her. Yeah.
0: Or well, it doesn't have to be your mum, if you're not on good terms with your mum. Your dad, your aunt, your uncle.
1: Yeah, stepmum, stepdad. Stepmum. Build down the road. Chosen family. Your mechanic.
0: Your mechanic. They'll give you cheap deals if you keep in their good graces.
1: The sous chef at your favorite the restaurant. Sous-chef.
0: The sushi chef at your favorite sushi Ooh, restaurant. The
1: su- sushi chef at your favorite <laughs> restaurant. <laughs>
0: We could go on all day. We could, yeah. Oh dear. Well, if you're new around here, I am Laura Elise. I'm one of your excellent co-hosts, but you can just call me Elise Navida.
1: <laughs> my name's Tama J. The J stands for Jack Nicholson screaming out his top of his lungs.
0: Nice. Screaming anything in particular or?
1: No, just screaming in general. That's my general mood right now. Like
0: into the void.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just it's it's either Jack Nicholson uh in the shining Staring at this typewriter with like the drooling face, mm. or him. I feel Screaming that. at Wendy. I feel that to this give week. Him the bat.
0: This week, like, look, blame Mercury retrograde, blame whatever. This week, blame Canada. Was oh stop it now! I want one of those burgers.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, blame whatever you want. This week was just not our week for podcasting. So we did record an episode last week like normal, and then Tamo went to edit said episode. And the entire recording had just shat itself.
1: Yeah, it disappeared without a trace.
0: And you know what? It was a good episode. Tama accidentally dropped the C word at yeah, the end.
1: it was so good. We were
0: going to have to bleep it out. It was yeah. great. We were joking. We were talking in accents. And it's gone forever. Mm-hmm. And then we tried to re-record it. Do you know how boring it is to <laughs> recite a story you've already talked about? Yeah, And then try and make it like... Ooh, fun and quirky and entertainment. Because like it doesn't work.
1: On one hand, you're pissed off at the fact that an entire hour and a half worth worth of like discussion is gone, and you haven't, you can't salvage a single second of it. But also, you've just talked about the story, and it's like I don't want to have to do that all over again. Like, how are yeah. you supposed to be entertaining? And look,
0: it was bullshit. Let's yeah, be it was real. Garbage. And then. So we tried to re-record it and then we were both just like, it's going to sound shit if we do it because yeah. you'll be able to tell we're both bored. And then we made a plan to record a different episode and then I got accidentally drunk <laughs> and so we couldn't do yeah. that. Uh, it's a thing. <laughs> accidentally accidentally drunk, drunk is a thing. be
1: the title of When a new you book. go out
0: for just, that's going to be the title of my life memo. Right. Accidentally drunk. Yeah. When you've gone out for just like, quote, a quiet one, but then somehow a quiet one devolves into like a loud 15. Yeah. And then before you know it, you're like, I can't read, let alone (laughs) record a podcast. How am I going to read my notes? So, yeah, it didn't. So, we just kind of made the executive decision. We would be releasing two full-length episodes this week. So, lucky you.
1: Yep, two for the price of one, and except you don't have to pay anything because it's It's a, a free, free podcast, show. Yep. yeah. How's your week been, Tama? It's been glorious. Uh, it's been just fine. We've been um, researching a lot of cases because we obviously were trying to make up for the lost case. Uh, so, you know, we, we didn't end up making a, a show last week, but it did just give a positive spin to it. I have a few cases that I'm raring to go with um, once we're done with our Halloween special. So, there's a positive there. Um, And yeah, just ready for the next week's worth of stuff. Ready
0: and raring to go. Yeah. What about you? I mean, look, it's been okay. Another week of unemployment, uh, another week of... Job interviews and just – I just hate doing job interviews. It's Hmm. just like 30 minutes of stress and 30 minutes of trying to be like your most put-together self and I'm like really not that put-together at the best (laughs) of times. Yeah. Uh, So – And also, like, I have a corporate job, but I'm a very non-corporate person, as you may be able to tell from (laughs) listening to this show. So, having to pretend to be, like, a normal human being for, like, 30 straight minutes is really quite difficult for me. Like.
1: Yeah, that whole idea of not letting your guard down kind of thing. Yeah, and, like,
0: don't say something weird. Don't say something weird. Don't say something weird. Oh, no, I mentioned SpongeBob SquarePants and I'm 28. (laughs) Fuck. I'm complimenting (sighs) my
1: my interviewee's e- tie on how it looks like a cat's fur.
0: Yeah, it's just... Anyway.
1: Like, you're fucking crazy.
0: Hopefully, by tomorrow, which is Monday, which is when this episode comes out, I will have a job by the end of the day.
1: Yes. Fingers crossed.
0: As excited as... I mean, as not excited as I am to actually go back to work, I'm very excited to have a wage again. Yeah. Because, you know.
1: Pray for Laura Lees. Hashtag. Hashtag. It. <laughs> hashtag. Pray for Laura Lees. Pray for our humble host.
0: Oh, dear. Um, oh, I did the merch, though. Merch is done. It will Mer- be going yep. live in the next few days, so stay tuned for that on our socials. Which it's looking are- really good. The BSC Podcast, so we are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, The BSC Podcast on all three. So, when the merch is done, I mean, the merch is done, I just need to get it up and Mm -hmm. live. So, when it is up and live, you'll be the first to know. So, stay tuned, folks. And it
1: looks awesome, too. The merch is glorious. Um, Thank you. I'm
0: really happy with it.
1: Really stoked to get that out there and get a couple to wear ourselves. Yeah. You know?
0: Yes, yes, yes. Um, I don't have anything else to say. No, I, I think that's pretty much a nail. it. That's upsetting. Great just in stuff. time for my job interview tomorrow. Lovely. Excellent.
1: Uh, let's just kick into it. Then. Let's
0: go. It's your turn to go. It first. is my
1: turn. So I am covering a case that I've been fascinated with ever since I started getting a weird fascination with criminal psychology. It's the first documented. Like interrogation in interview footage that I kind of got obsessed with, obsessed with watching and, and like boiling down all the different aspects of like here you can sense this or get this kind of feeling from what she's saying. It's a lady called um, Jennifer Pan. Now you may have heard this case. It was a couple of years ago. It's fairly recent, not like a seventies case. It's within the two thousands. Um, it, it this in happened in um, in Toronto in Canada. And uh, it's a very it's a bit of a doozy. So I'm going to jump into the you know the story of her and her parents and what subsequently happens, and uh, a little bit about the interrogations. And of course, in our maybe in our um, shaken not stirred episode, we'll also dive into a bit of the interrogation themselves and break down parts in there. So keep an eye out for that, and we'll we'll get into that a bit. But um, I will start off with the background of. Uh, Jennifer Pan and her parents. Yeah,
0: let's so, do it.
1: Yeah, her parents were named B. Han and Hui Han Pan, and they were the like classic example of you know Canadian immigrants coming to America or Canada in this case, um, and just starting from the mud and making their own way into the world and a real good success story. So Han was raised and educated in Vietnam and moved to Canada as a political refugee in 1979. Beek came separately, but was also a refugee. They married in Toronto and they lived in Scarborough. They had two kids, Jennifer in 1986 and Felix three years later, and they found jobs at the Aurora-based auto parts manufacturer, Magna International. Hahn worked as a tool and dime maker, and Beek made car parts. They lived um, pretty frugally in the early years. They were, were scraping to get by. They were immigrants. It's kind of hard to, obviously, as you can imagine, make a living wage and make your way up in the world with two kids. But by 2004, they'd saved enough money to buy a large home with a two-car garage in a quiet residential street in Markham. Han drove a Mercedes-Benz and Beak had a Lexus ES300 and together they accumulated around $200,000 in the bank. So, they're making a pretty penny by this stage in their lives and doing pretty well. The typical story you hear from these families of um, Asian immigrant families based, they these parents come to you know, America or Canada or Australia and they work, you know, their bones dry, they're like, you know, they, they're they struggling to get by and they yeah. work really, really hard to make their money and help bring their family up. And the expectation that's laid on their children is they should work as hard as they had to to, you know, provide a home for their families. So, typically, you have these high expectations in, in cultures and families like these. And Jennifer's family was no exception. So, it was it was kind of um, implemented that Beak and Han lay the groundwork and that her kids would need to then, their kids would then need to, you know, improve on it. Yeah. So they enrolled Jennifer in piano classes at age four. Uh, and by elementary school, she racked up a trophy case full of awards. She, they put her into figure skating and she hoped to compete at the national level with her sights set on the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver. But unfortunately, she tore a ligament in her knee. Some nights during elementary school, Jennifer would come home from skating practice at ten p m uh, do homework until midnight and then head to bed. Um, obviously, a lot of pressure building up in this kind of household and and this life of meeting the expectations of your parents and you know obviously tearing a ligament you need something that you 're very passionate about. She, at this stage, began to cut herself because it was a, a very trying time in her life. Uh, as graduation from the 8th grade approached, Jennifer expected to be named um, valedictorian and to collect a handful of medals for her academic achievements, but she received none of them and wasn't named valedictorian. She was, obviously at this stage stunned she didn't know why she questioned the ethics of putting in a lot of work to get no acknowledgement and no reward so what was the point and instead of showing this devastation on her face she would often just have an outward appearance of everything's fine and um, at some point, she would label this her happy mask.
0: Keeping it all together. Exactly,
1: yeah. But anyone around her would obviously notice that there was something a bit weird of, of Jennifer. Now, we're going to get into a little bit of how the people around her reacted because the, the main, most of the information I'm reading today is directly coming from a... A student that was in the same school as Jennifer, a girl named Karen K. Ho, who's now a pretty successful um, journalist. And she wrote this article in Toronto Life, won several awards for it. And we'll go into a bit more of her personal experiences with Jennifer and Shaken Not Stirred. Um, But just to jump back into it... uh, It it was obvious that Jennifer's friendly outwards persona was, um, you know, false and she was just trying to hide all these feelings of inadequacy and torment inside of her. And when she failed to win first place at a skating competition, she would often try to hide a devastation from parents and wouldn't want them to, wouldn't want to add to their disappointment, essentially. Uh, When when Beak noticed that something was wrong with her daughter, she would try and comfort her at night um, when Han was asleep, saying, quote, you know, all we want from you is just your best. Do what you can. At some point, she'd been a top student in elementary school, but midway through grade nine, she was averaging at 70% in all her subjects, with the exception of being music, which she excelled in. With most students, this would be an acceptable grade you know yeah. 70% is not great but it's it's something it's better than below 50 but in a household like this it's you know terrible it's not what you would expect at all so to avoid disappointment from her, from her parents and discipline she would use old report cards scissors glue and a photocopier to create new forged report cards with straight a's since universities didn't consider marks from grade 9 to 10 for admission she told herself it wasn't a huge deal. Now in the the classic dynamic of the parents was that Hahn was the the authoritarian authoritarian what's that word authoritarian authoritarian author- Authoritarian. Hey, Damn we found it. a it. word got you me can't with that. say. Authoritarian. Yeah. Authoritarian. There we go. I um, think that's parent. how you say yeah. it. Anyway. Uh, and Han, his wife was more of the, you know, the the bystander and the reluctant accomplice. So one day, one day they picked up Jennifer from school at the end of their day, at the end of her school day, monitoring her extracurricular activities, and they forbade her from attending any dances. Han had considered that any of these activities that weren't, um, you know, piano or dance classes, he didn't think they were productive. So, obviously, parties were off-limits to her and boyfriends were definitely off-limits until after university. When Jennifer was permitted to attend a sleepover at a friend's place, Beacon Han dropped her off late at night and picked her up early by the, the following morning. By the age of 22, and this is... The real crazy stat. She had never gone to a club, never been drunk, and had never visited a friend's cottage or gone on vacation without her her family.
0: Yeah, 22, that's pretty wild. You you can't even
1: go to your friend's house without your parents being there. That's insane. And, you know, obviously you can chalk it up to the parents being overprotective, just wanting the best for their child. But a lot of her friends saw it differently. And obviously with Jennifer's point of view, it's a completely different thing. Jennifer met a young man called Daniel Wong in grade 11. He was a year older than her. He was kind of a goofy kid, um, you know, a nice smile and just a general, you know, Big laugh, nice guy. He played trumpet in the school bands and in a marching band outside of school. Their relationship together was platonic until a band trip to Europe in 2003. After a performance they had in a concert hall filled with smokers, Jennifer suffered an asthma attack. She started panicking and she went outside to the tour bus and almost blacked out. Daniel was the one who managed to calm her down, helping her breathe. She was quoted as saying that he pretty much saved her life, and it meant everything. And that summer, they started dating. Jennifer's parents assumed their daughter was a straight-A student, but in truth, she earned mostly Bs, which is respectable for most kids, but not in her strict household. So Jennifer continued to create her false report cards throughout high school and she received early acceptance to Rison, but failed calculus in her final year and wasn't able to graduate, Rison, obviously being a university. Soon after the university withdrew its offer, desperate to keep her parents from digging into her high school records, she lied and said that she in fact had been accepted to Ryzen and would begin uh, attending in the late fall. She said her plan was to do two years of science and then transfer to the University of Toronto's pharmacology program, which her was her f- father's hope from the beginning. Harm was obviously delighted and bought her a brand new laptop. Jennifer collected used uh, biology and physics textbooks and bought school supplies that she would end up needing. In September, she pretended to attend a frosh week when it came to tuition. She falsified papers saying that she was receiving an OSAP loan and convinced her dad that she'd won a $3,000 scholarship. She would pack her book bag and take public transport downtown. While her parents assumed that she was heading to class, in fact, she would go to public libraries where she would research on the web what she figured were relevant scientific topics and filled her books with copious notes. She spent her free time at cafes or visiting Daniel at York University where he was taking classes. She picked up a few day shifts as a server at Eastside Mario's and Markham, and taught piano lessons. And later, ten bar a bar at Boston Pizza, where Daniel worked as a-, as a kitchen manager. And you think if you're putting this much effort into falsifying your notes, just for go a-
0: back a and course, redo calculus. You
1: know what I mean? Like you're doing the notes, and you're trying to put up this front, but it's like you're actually doing the work. Uh, at home, Han had off- offered. T- Often asked uh, Jennifer about her studies, but Beak would tell him not to interfere and just let her be herself. In order to keep this whole act from crashing down, Jennifer had to lie to her friends as well. She even lied about her dad meddling in her life, saying to one friend, and this has been disproven, that her father had hired a private investigator to follow her. After Jennifer had pretended to be enrolled at Ryerson for two years, Hahn asked her if she was still planning to go to U- University of Toronto. She, of course, said yes, and that she had been accepted into a pharmacology program. Her parents were ecstatic, and she suggested that she would move down um, in with her friend Topaz downtown for three nights a week. Beek, being a sympathetic mother, um, thought this was a great idea, and that Jennifer's long commute each day would work a lot better if she had somewhere to stay down there. Uh, Jennifer never, in fact, stayed at Topaz's house. Monday through Wednesday, she stayed with Daniel and his family in their home in Ajax, a large house on a quiet tree-lined street. Jennifer lied to Daniel's parents as well, telling them her parents were okay with the arrangement and brushed off their repeated request to meet Han and Beak over Dim Sum, or for us in Australia, Yumcha. After two more years, it was theoretically time for, to, for her to graduate University of Toronto. Now, yes, you didn't just hear that. Two years of pretending that she was attending University of Toronto. Jennifer and Daniel hired someone they found online to create a fake transcript full of A's. When it came to the ceremony, uh, Jennifer told her parents that the extra large class size meant that they weren't, there weren't enough seats for everyone and graduating students were only allowed one guest at a time. She didn't want either of her parents to miss out, so she told them she gave a ticket to a friend of hers. Jennifer developed a mental strategy to deal with her lies. Um, she would look at herself in the third person and you know, didn't like what she saw, but her rationalizations in her head would tell her to keep going. Otherwise, she would lose everything that ever meant anything to her. Eventually, this had to end. You know, this, it, this can't keep up forever yeah of course had to unravel so while supposedly studying at University of Toronto she had told her parents about an exciting new development she was volunteering at the blood testing lab at Sick Kids this gig warranted a late night shift most on on, uh, Fridays and weekends she suggested that she would spend more of the, the week at Topaz's to compensate for these late shifts but Han noticed that she didn't have a uniform or a key card from sick Kids, and the very next day, he insisted to drop her off at the hospital. As soon as the car stopped, she sprinted inside, and Han instructed B to go follow her. When she realized that she was being followed by her mum, Jennifer hid in the waiting area of the ER for a few hours until they both left. Early the next morning, they called Topaz, who told them the truth. Jennifer was never there. She had never stayed there at all. And when Jennifer finally came home, Han confronted her. This is where she confessed that she didn't volunteer at Sick Kids. She had never been to University of Toronto's pharmacology program. And she, she had in fact been staying at Daniel's house instead of Topaz's house. Though she neglected to tell them that she'd never graduated high school and that her time at Ryerson was also completely fiction. So, you've come to this stalemate um, obviously, the gear can't hold up. There's some things, mm. obviously, they haven't figured out yet. But So, at this stage, Han tells his daughter to get out and never come back. However, Beek being the sympathetic mother, eventually convinces him to let their daughter stay. They do, have, however, take away her cell phone and laptop for about two weeks, after which she was only permitted to use them in her parents' presence and had to endure surprise checks of her messages. They forbade her from seeing Daniel and they ordered her to quit all of her jobs except for the piano lessons and began tracking the odometer in a car. This was unfortunate for Jennifer because she was madly in love with Daniel and eventually grew very lonely as well. For two weeks, she was housebound with her mother by her side almost constantly. Though Beak told Jennifer where her dad had hidden her phone so she could periodically check her messages. In February 2009, she wrote on her Facebook page, quote, Living in my house is like living under house arrest. She also posted another post saying, No one knows everything about me, and no people put together knows everything about me. I like being a mystery. Obviously, very cryptic, weird messages. Yeah. But over the spring and summer, she snuck phone calls in with Daniel on her cell phone at night, whispering in the dark. Eventually, she was allowed some freedom, and she enrolled into a calculus course to get her final high school credit back. Still, in defying her parents' order, she would visit Daniel in between her, her piano lessons. One night, she arranged her blankets to look like she was asleep, then snuck out to Daniel's house. However, she'd forgotten that she actually had her mother's wallet on her, and in the morning, when Big went into her room to retrieve it, she discovered that Jennifer was gone. Beacon Hahn ordered Jennifer to come home immediately, and then demanded that she apply to college. Um, she could still be a pharmacy lab technician or a nurse, and they told her that she had to cut off all contact with Daniel. She resisted, but Daniel had grown weary of this secret romance, and you know she was 24 years old, sneaking around, terrified of her parents, but not willing to leave their home. So he told her, "Figure your life out, figure your shit out," and they, he broke off their relationship. And obviously because Jennifer was madly in love with him, she was heartbroken. He was devastating and, for her. Yeah, and, and soon after she learned that Daniel was actually seeing a different girl named Christine. Ooh. A little bit of attention here. In an attempt to win his love back and discredit Christine, she told him that a man had knocked on her door and flashed what looked like a police badge. When she opened the door, a group of men rushed in overpowered her and gang-raped her in the foyer of her house. Then, a few days later, she said she received a bullet in an envelope in her mailbox. Both instances, she alleged, were warnings from Christine to leave Daniel alone.
0: That's just, like, neck-level to neck lie level. about that.
1: Oh, yeah. In the spring of 2010, Jennifer reconnected with a friend of hers named Andrew Montemayor, a friend from elementary school... ...that she knew from way back when. According to Jennifer's later evidence in court, he had boasted about robbing people at Knife Point in the park near his home, a claim which he later denies. When Jennifer told him about her odd relationship with her father, Montemay confessed that he'd once considered killing his own father. This notion intrigued Jennifer. She began imagining how her life would be so much better without her father around this is when Montemaya introduces Jennifer to his roommate, Ricardo Duncan, a goth kid with black nail polish. Over bubble tea in between her piano lessons, according to Jennifer, they hatched a plan for Duncan to murder her father in a parking lot at his work, a tool and dye company named called Kobai and near Finch and McCowan. She says she gave Duncan $1,500 earnings from her piano classes and they agreed to connect later by phone to arrange a date and time for the hit however duncan stopped answering her calls and by early july jennifer realized she'd been ripped off however duncan says that she called him early july hysterically requesting that he come and kill her parents now he said he felt offended and said no and that he the only money she ever gave him was two hundred dollars for a night out which he promptly returned to her According to police, it was at this point that Daniel and Jennifer were both back in contact with each other, obviously through their phone records, sending flirtatious text messages to each other and devising a new plan. They would hire a hit on both Beek and Han, collect the estate, Jennifer's portion totaling around $500,000, and live together unencumbered by their meddling parents. Daniel gave Jennifer a spare iPhone and a SIM card and connected her with an acquaintance of theirs, his named Leonard Crawford, who he had nicknamed Homeboy. Jennifer asked what the going rate was for a contract killing, just, you know, as you do. As
0: you do, just casually.
1: Casually. Crawford said it was about $20,000, but for a friend of Daniel's, it could be done for $10,000. So there you go. A life is worth $10,000. Ten grand. Yeah. Jennifer... Excuse me, I just burped. Jennifer was careful to use her iPhone for, uh, for her conversations about the hit and her other Samsung phone for everything else. Uh, on one ha- Halloween night, Crawford visited the Pan's neighborhood to scout the house, and it was the perfect cover because yeah, a bunch of kids in costumes yeah, you know, walking around, going up to the house and knocking. And on the afternoon of November 2, this is when shit really hits the fan. Daniel had texted Jennifer saying that he felt as strongly about Christine as she did about him. Suddenly, everything was thrown to question. She texted Daniel saying, quote, So you feel what I feel for you. Then call it off with homeboy. He responds saying, I thought you wanted this for you. Jennifer responds saying, I do, but I have nowhere to go. Daniel, call it off with, your, with homeboy. You said you wanted this with or without me. Jennifer, I want it for me. The next day, Daniel texted, I did everything and lined it up for you. Seemed Daniel wanted it out of the arrangement. But within hours, they were back to their old flirtatious texting, regular sexting ways. Later that day, Crawford texted Jennifer saying, I need the time of completion. Think about it. Jennifer wrote back saying, Today is a no-go. Dinner plans out, so won't be home in time. Over the following week, there was a few texts and phone calls between Jennifer, Daniel, and Crawford. But on the morning of November 8, Crawford texted Jennifer saying, After work, okay, will be game time. That evening, Jennifer was watching Gossip Girl and John and Kate Plus 8 in her bedroom while Han read Vietnamese news down the hall before heading to bed around 8.30pm. Beek was out doing line dancing lessons with a friend and cousin. Felix who was studying engineering at McMaster University wasn't home at the time. At approximately 9:30 p.m., Beat comes home from her line dancing class and changes into her pajamas and soaks her feet in front of the TV on the main floor. At 9:35 p.m., a man named David Milverganum, a friend of Crawford's, calls Jennifer and they speak for nearly 2 minutes. Jennifer goes downstairs to say goodnight to Beek, and as Jennifer later admitted, unlocks the front door. Which is a fun fact, statement she later redacted in her official statement. At 10.02 p.m., the light in the upstairs study is switched on, uh, and then a minute later is switched off. Allegedly a signal to the intruders to enter. At 10.05 p.m., Milver calls again, and he and Jennifer speak, speak for three and a half minutes. Moments later, Crawford, Milver and a third man named Eric Cardi walk through the front door, all three carrying guns. One pointed his gun at Beak, while another ran upstairs, shoving a gun at Han's face and directing him out of the bed, down the stairs, and into the living room. Upstairs, Cardi confronted Jennifer outside her bedroom. According to Jennifer... Cardi tied her arms behind her using a shoelace. He directed her back inside where she handed over approximately two point five hundred dollars in cash. 2 dollars in cash, sorry. And then uh, went to her parents' bedroom where he, lo- he located $1,100 in US funds in her mother's nightstand. And then finally went to the kitchen to search for her mother's wallet. Beek could be heard yelling at her husband, Han, in Cantonese, saying, how could they enter the house? He responds back saying, I don't know, I was sleeping. One of the intruders yells, shut up, you talk too much, before um, saying, where's the fucking money? Han had about $6 in his wallet and said as much, to which the intruder says, liar, and pistol whips him with the back of the head. Beak began began crying and was pleading with the men to not hurt her daughter. One of the intruders replied saying, rest assured, she is nice and she will not be hurt. Cardi led Jennifer back upstairs and tied her arms to the banister while Mil- Milva and Crawford took Beak and Han to the basement and covered their heads with blankets. They shot Han twice, once in the shoulder and then once in the face. He crumples to the floor. They shook Beek, three times in the head killing her instantly and then flee through the front door somehow Jennifer manages to get her phone out tucked into the waistband of her pants and dials 911 however later she would claim that having her she she claimed that despite having her hands tied behind her back she makes this phone call and in the phone call we'll listen to it and shake and not stir but essentially she just says help me please help me please I need help uh, I don't know where my parents are. Please hurry. The most horrifying thing to listen to is around the 34 second mark of a call. You can hear Han moaning in the background, yelling for help. He had awoken from his two gunshot wounds, miraculously survived, w- wakes up covered in blood next to his dead wife's body and crawls up the stairs right. to the main floor. This is the point where you hear... ...Jennifer switch up a tone. So it's frantic and it's it, it's how you would imagine someone making a 911 call. Yeah. But it switches completely when she hears her dad, who she's ordered a hit on, is still alive. Mm. So you, she yells down um, to him in, uh, I believe, Vietnamese uh, or Cantonese, I'm not too sure, uh, that she was calling 911. At this point, Han stumbles outside screaming wildly and encounters one of his neighbors who was about to leave for work in the driveway next door. The neighbor calls 911, Good Samaritan, and police and an ambulance arrive at the scene minutes later and Han is rushed to a nearby airport where he's later airlifted to Sunnybrook. York Regional Police interviewed Jennifer just before 3am. She told them that the men who had entered the house looking for money Uh, tied her to the banister and had taken her parents to the basement and shot them. Two days later, the police brought her in again to give a second statement. At their request, she showed them how she contorted her body to get her phone, a flip phone, out of her waistband and place a phone call while she was tied to the banister. It was at this point that detectives started to see the holes in her theory. For example, these are intruders. They come to steal money. Yeah. They break into the house. They have nice cars. Han has a Lexus. Mm. The keys to the Lexus are sitting in plain view of the of the front by the front door. The detectives deduced that if this is a home invasion, you would have seen the, the keys one hundred percent. Why did the the intruders not take the keys? Why didn't they have a crowbar to get in in the first place? Yeah. Why didn't they have a backpack to carry all the loot? or zip ties to restrain the residents. Most importantly, why would they shoot two witnesses but leave another one unharmed?
0: Mm-hmm. Very good point. It was at
1: this point that a surveillance team was tasked with monitoring Jennifer's every movements. By November 12, Han had woken up from his three-day induced coma. He had a broken bone near his eye, Bullet fragments launched his face that doctors couldn't remove, and a shattered neck bone bullet had grazed his carotid artery. Remarkably, he remembers every single thing that happened, including two specific details. He recalls seeing his daughter chatting softly, like a friend, with one of the intruders, and that her arms were in fact not tied behind her back while she was being led around the house. On November 22, the police bring Jennifer in for a third interview. This one's a little bit of a different tone. Their detective, William Goats, said that he knew she was involved in the crime. He knew that she had lied to him and said it was in her best interest to fess up. And after some, you know, half and half and some deliberation, Jennifer eventually hunches over, begins to sob and repeatedly asks, "What's what happens to me? But what happens to me?
0: Very self-centered.
1: Exactly, yeah. Over nearly four hours, Jennifer brings this absurd story and explanation out. She explained that the attack had been an elaborate plan to commit suicide gone horribly wrong. She had given up on life but couldn't manage to kill herself, so she hired Homeboy, whose real name she claimed she did not know, to do it for her. In September, however, her relationship with the father had, had father had suddenly improved and she decided to call off the hit. But somehow, wires got crossed and the men ended up killing her parents instead of her. Police arrested Jennifer on the spot and in the spring of 2011, relying on an analysis of phone calls and text, they also managed to nab Daniel, Mil- Mil- Milvaganum, Cardi and Crawford, and charged all five with first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. The trial began on March 19, 2014, in Newmarket. It was expected to last around six months, but it eventually ended up spanning about ten. More than 50 witnesses testified, and more than 200 exhibits were filed. Jennifer was on the stand for about seven days going back and forth with these weird, futile attempts to explain why she was texting Crawford and Daniel with phone calls to Milva Garnham about killing her father and mother. And desperate as she may try, the jury um, still still weren't convinced that she had nothing to do with ordering a hit against her father in August. And then three days later wanted nothing to do with it. Before the jury had a verdict, Jennifer appeared almost upbeat, um, playfully picking lint with her off her lawyer's robes. When the guilty verdict was delivered, she showed no emotion, but once the press had left the room, she began to weep, shaking uncontrollably. For the first charge... For the charge of first-degree murder, Jennifer received an automatic life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. For the attempted murder of her father, she received another sentence of life to be served concurrently. Daniel, Milver Garnum, and Crawford each received the same sentence. Cardi's lawyer fell ill during the trial, so his trial was then postponed to early 2016, but he received a similar sentence. The judge granted two non-communication orders, one banning communication amongst the five defendants until Cardi's trial was complete and a second between Jennifer and her family at the latter's request, effectively preventing Jennifer from speaking to her brother or father ever again. Han and Felix both wrote victim impact statements. And if you do want to read them, they're absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, One line reads as from Hans statement saying when I lost my wife I lost my daughter at the same time I don't feel like I have a family anymore some would say I should feel lucky to be alive but I feel like I am dead too to this day he's unable to work due to his injuries he suffers anxiety attacks insomnia and when he can sleep nightmares is in constant pain and has given up gardening, working on his cars, and listening to music, since none of them bring him any joy anymore. Uh, He can't bear to be in the house, so he lives with relatives nearby. Felix, her brother, moved to the East Coast to find work with with a private technology company and to escape the stigma of being a member of the notorious Pan family. He suffers from depression and has become closed off as well. Hans, desperate to sell the family home, but Obviously, no one will buy it. At the end of his statement, Han addressed his daughter, Jennifer. I hope my daughter, Jennifer, thinks about what has happened to her family and can become a good, honest person one day. And that's that. That's the end of the Jennifer Pan story. It's a tragic one. Mm. One that ends with a life being taken that didn't need to, obviously... um. And just the family torn apart by one person's odd and selfish actions.
0: It's just so weird that, like, that's the conclusion you would jump to. Mm. Wouldn't be to just, like, try and move out of home, but would be to murder your parents and just try and make the lies go away, basically. Yeah.
1: I know the whole... the There's a lot of arguments of, like, the parents were tyrants and horrible and, you know almost dictator-like and, I mean, every household is different. Every household, you know, disciplines their children differently and expects different things of their children and especially in, you know, a Vietnamese and, you know, Chinese-based household, these are immigrant parents who have worked and slaved to get to the point that they are now. To
0: give you the life that you have.
1: Exactly, and the expectation is that We've worked really hard to get you here. You should feel the same energy that we have, which a lot of different households go through that and you don't see them murdering their parents.
0: Exactly.
1: But that's what's interesting about this case is that she's not inherently a violent person. There's no history of like, you know, bedwetting yeah. or arson or it's just a a, a complex of Lying to get her way out of things, much like the Casey Anthony Oh yeah, case. she and,
0: clearly has some very deep set mental health issues.
1: Yes, and a lot of um, you know, a lot of issues with not being able to impress her parents. Mm. Um, I remember reading somewhere that even when she did well in her things, her father would rarely compliment her on it, and that obviously has some sort of you know psychological trigger. Um, having that torn ligament you know, in- enabling her from competing figure skating again anymore. Mm. Uh, and she was apparently a prodigy of figure skating. So, that I can imagine that would just be torment.
0: Yeah. But, you know, still don't murder your parents. No.
1: It's, it's one of those things where, like, and we say it all the time, like, we don't condone it and we don't understand them and empathize with them in the sense of what they did. Mm. But you can see... You can sort of science. see the path yeah. that led them there. It makes sense when you look at it from A to B and you go, I understand how this happened. Yeah. I don't condone it. I don't empathize with it. But I can see how it happened yeah, now. Yeah, for sure. And that's how it is. Um, Shake and Not Stirred, our Friday episode, we'll watch some of the interviews. We'll go into depth of her kind of profile. Um, the really interesting aspects of her selfishness, just how she's constantly asking what happens to me, her manipulative m- manipulative activities, it's a yeah. very interesting case, and um, we'll get into that on our Friday episode.
0: That should be fun. I really enjoyed doing that um, yeah. last week. Me too. When we did the case, K- well not last week, because we didn't have one last week, no. but the week before when we had the Casey Anthony yeah tapes that we went over.
1: Yeah, and I, I hope um, my voice wasn't too annoying. I've got a little bit of a blocked nose at the moment, so I'm kind of nasally.
0: No excuse, Tama.
1: So, yeah, no excuses. Harden to fuck up, but Be
0: I Be fucking professional.
1: I hope um, it wasn't too mu- unbearable for people to listen to on an audio-based show.
0: I mean, I had to listen to you.
1: <laughs> oh, shit.
0: If I can do it, you can do it.
1: True, very true. Um, I'm on to you, bro.
0: Excellent. Yeah, we will just um, quickly say I find those the cases from more recent times very interesting because we do have access to so much more. Well,
1: like that's the audio thing. Exactly.
0: Interview footage. Yeah. Like I very think
1: good. I don't know if we've mentioned it before, but we were watching that Netflix show where someone actually the the lawyer for Jeffrey Dahmer had audio yeah, audio recordings of tourist. interviews with her yeah. him. Sorry, and that's such a rare occurrence that it's like oh, fascinating. But we have literal youtube videos yeah hours of it just so we can watch about current things now
0: is it my turn it is it's your turn go for it so today's case has been one that i've been wanting to do for a while because i find this case fascinating it literally sounds like a hollywood movie plot rather than like a murder case double murder case okay and that is the stories of Helen Golay and Olga rudder also known as the Killer Grannies of Santa Monica.
1: Oh, mm. interesting.
0: So Helen Golay was born in Texas in 1931. Early in her life, her father dies in a car accident and Helen is sort of shipped around from household to household until she's eventually placed in foster care. In 1980s, she moves to Santa Monica and tries to make it big as a real estate agent, but finds the laws surrounding tenants and their rights far too tough. So she instead begins to spy on and extort any of her tenants, also successfully lodging a slew of false lawsuits against varying people and businesses and making quite a pretty penny from that.
1: Mm, as all good real estate agents do. Yeah.
0: Olga rutter was born in Hungary in 1933 and moved to the U.S. with her then-husband in 1957. At the time of meeting Golay, she is a widow claiming a mental disability pension and living in public housing. Neighbors know her as a, quote, nut. He was overly talkative and tends to fly off the handle at any given time. And it was during a typical Jane Fonda-esque style workout class in the 80s when Helen Golay and Olga rudder meet at a West LA health spa. Both having experienced traumatic childhoods, the women bond over their stories of parents dying in awful car crashes and growing up in poverty-stricken Hungary during World War II. They bond over their childhoods as well as many failed marriages and struggles to make ends meet financially. Both are, at the time, conventionally attractive women in their younger years and the women grow a tentative, if what, somewhat distrusting bond and make it their goal to basically amass an empire of wealth. The tricks that they do seem to start somewhat innocently enough – Allegedly, the women would dress up in short skirts and do their hair beautifully, and then they'd slip into fancy hotels with wealthy patrons where they would pretend to be guests. They would flirt with the rich men and string them along in an effort to be taken out for expensive dinners and given lavish gifts. Outwardly appearing well-off and, of course, being white, no one would question their appearance there. Mind you, these... Claims are unsubstantiated. They have been somewhat supported by some of the hotels in LA, but they're all uncharged claims. Right. But many have said that they would put on their swimsuits, sneak into the pool or spa area of these upmarket hotels, and while patrons weren't looking, they would swipe cash, jewelry, and credit cards from the discarded clothing. Patrons assuming that in somewhere as upmarket as the hotels they were in, their belongings would be safe. So they'd sort of just leave stuff. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So as I said, the beginning the crimes, while still illegal, seem fairly petty, you know, stealing small amounts of cash from the heavily lined pockets of L.A.'s well-to-do. However, it does appear that greed gets the better of both women pretty quickly, and they seem to escalate to insurance fraud, much larger forms of theft, and eventually multiple counts of murder. The women work together to pull off multiple slip and fall lawsuits at various businesses. So basically, you walk in and pretend to stack it and then sue the business. Nice. It's due to these lawsuits that Rudder Schmidt first meets George Brownfield, a lawyer who owns a small practice in LA. Now, this is where an article is written by George's son about these two women and like going through his old. Uh, case files for these women. It's quite interesting. It was one of the articles I used for a heavy portion of this research. Right. So George being a Hungarian immigrant himself, his client base mainly consists of fellow immigrants, one of which includes Rada Schmidt. George's former secretary describes her as a typical nuisance client who appears every year or so with another personal injury claim, either from a fall or motor accident. A longtime friend of Schmidt said that she told her she'd worked out a way to defraud multiple credit card companies, essentially maxing out one card and then using another to pay it off and another to pay that off, and eventually evaporating, leaving the debt entirely unpaid.
1: Huh.
0: Helen Gole's hairdresser was quoted as saying one time while having her hair done, Gole bragged of seducing and marrying older wealthy men and then slowly drugging them over time with high doses of Viagra until a heart attack was eventually triggered. Jesus However, it was the murders of Paul Vados, age 73, and Kenneth McDavid, age 50, who were mercilessly run down by cars in 1999 and 2005, respectively, that were the ultimate evil and eventual undoing of the women. On November 8, 1991, 911 dispatchers receive a call about an alleged hit and run. The man is identified as Paul Vados. Police arrive on scene when they find an elderly man deceased on the sidewalk. Due to the style and placement of his injuries, police make the assumption that the man must have been passed out on the ground, either due to alcohol or drugs, when a car has accidentally struck and killed him. Upon making identification, police are able to contact Paul's fiancée, Helen Golay, and her cousin, Olga Rudderschmidt, who had just recently reported Vados as a missing person. Only a few days after his death, Rutter arrives at the police station demanding the official death certificate, showing little to emotion for the passing of Vados. Police are initially suspicious of the women's odd demeanor, but due to the lack of evidence, the case is eventually closed. Despite being allegedly engaged to Gole, Vados was homeless, and it seems surprising to police that he has eight insurance policies, which together pay out around a million dollars. Gole and Radishmit met Vados at Hollywood Presbyterian Church in 1977, and for two years they pretend to be his guardian angels. Vados, like their later victim, is targeted due to his vulnerable nature and also the lack of close friends or any family to keep an eye on him. Putting him up in one of the many apartments Gole owns and paying all of his bills, they also make sure any of his health issues are tended to and make sure that he's always well fed. Vados does not know that while this is happening, the pair are quietly taking out multiple life insurance policies on him. And it's in 2000 that George Brownfield first hears of Paul Vados when Schmidt comes to his office, claiming Vados was a friend of hers and she used to check in on him every now and then as well as driving him to AA meetings. It was then that she introduces Vados to her friend Helen Golay and the pair fall in love. To repay them both for their kindness, the women said he'd named them as co-beneficiaries on his insurance policy issued by Monumental Life. Now that Vados is dead, they were due the payout, but Monumental and another insurer Guarantee reserve life were disputing that on the grounds that Vados' death was potentially a homicide and the women had yet to be ruled out as suspects. This is why Bloomfeld is bought into this whole thing, to sue the insurance companies. Eventually, the case is settled and Golay and Rudderschmidt take their money to the tune of $600,000 while Vados is buried in an unmarked grave. While the women had always been major suspects, there's no real evidence other than circumstantial to pin them to the crime. In 2003, the women go back to the same Presbyterian church where they go victim shopping, this time honing in on 50-year-old Kenneth McDavid. Like Vados, they lure him in with the promise of board. Food and general care in exchange for simply signing a few pieces of paper and opening a checking bank account. Quote, this is how it would start, Detective Kilsoyne, who was later assigned to the case, said. They would go, open a checking account, and then, hey, by opening a checking account, you get a free $1,000 policy. Then a week or two later in the mail, you get a thing from Bank of America. Hey, because you're such a great customer, we've just increased you. For $0.26 cents a week, your policy can be 10000 It just starts snowballing from there.
1: Right. On June
0: 22, 2005, 911 receives another call of a hit-and-run accident. This time, the victim is Kenneth McDavid. His chest and skull have been crushed, and he has grease stains on his clothes, indicating that he's been hit by the underside of a motor vehicle. Nearby, a bicycle with its front tire removed was found, initially leading police to believe that McDavid may have been attempting to fix a tire when he was hit. However, the helmet is hanging on the bike, and the tire appears full of air and completely undamaged. Police now begin to become suspicious of a potentially staged crime scene. CCTV from a nearby store provides more clues. In it, you see either a Ford Taurus or a Mercury Sable. Let's just remember that. Mercury Sable. Drive into the alley. The brake lights come on. The vehicle goes dark and remains dark for about five minutes. It then turns back on and the car drives away. Meanwhile, when toxic... Toxicology reports come back. They show that McDavid had high levels of alcohol, (laughs) alcohol, Jesus Christ. (laughs) High levels of alcohol, zolpidem, and hydrocodone in his system, enough to basically knock him out. It would have been impossible for him to have been riding a bicycle at the time of his death. And now detectives are sure that something dodgy is afoot. Detectives now begin begin digging deeper. They find McDavid's last address and visit where the super of the building explains that McDavid had been unable to pay rent and so had been kicked out and ended up eventually being homeless. He said he had stayed in contact though and remembered McDavid telling him that a woman called Helen Golay had offered to take him in. Before they are even able to track her down though, Golay has already made a claim to McDavid's things and requested he be cremated. Golay's, quote, cousin, Olga Rudderschmidt, then arrives at the police station to collect the official death certificate. Due to the fact the insurance policies on McDavid are less than two years old, a simple routine investigation is undertaken by the companies and inconsistencies start to arise pretty quickly. Despite calling them... Uh, Despite calling them his business partners on the insurance paperwork as McDavid's beneficiaries, they've now labeled themselves to police as fiancé and cousin, respectively. Right. Simple facts like addresses and places of employment also turn out to be lies, and the women refuse to answer any questions when called by the insurance companies. This is when the company reports their findings to police. So Ed Webster from the insurance company calls and speaks with Dennis Kilcoyne, As the detective is speaking on the phone, another detective from the same precinct happens to overhear the conversation and remembers having a very similar case, that of a homeless man involved in a hit and run around five years ago. This detective tracks down Vados' cold case file and lo and behold discovers the same two women are involved. And it's at this stage that the cases are linked and the FBI is called and involved for the first time. A a further small amount of digging, and they find out that Golay and Ruddishmint have taken out more than 20 policies equaling about $5 million total on Vados and McDavid. At this point, the women are placed under surveillance, and police are horrified to discover they've already already begun to start the ruse again with (laughs) another man. Of course. Undercover officers see the women chatting with an elderly man, Joseph Gabor, who lives alone at the church. They spot the women chatting and going over several forms with Joseph, the next day driving him to the Bank of America. At this point, they have at least more than enough information to arrest the women on mail fraud charges, and so on May 18, 2006, both women are arrested. At 4 a.m., over 100 law enforcement officials gather and split into two teams with the idea of arresting the women at their homes at the exact same time. Quote, I wanted it to be a major dog and pony show to scare the shit out of these women, the detective explained, (laughs) because we want them to talk, and talk they did. So after refusing to speak with the detectives, they are placed and left alone in in an interrogation room together, and they start speaking to each other almost immediately, assumably unaware that they're being recorded, and the recordings caught the following. Olga. You did all these insurances extra. That's what raised the suspicion. You can't do that. Stupidity. You're going to go to jail, honey. They're going to lock you up. Helen, listen, you're talking too much. Olga, I know, but it's your fault that our relationship ended up like this and you ended up like this. Helen, and you better be quiet. You better not know anything. Olga, I do not know anything. I don't know. Helen, are they going to find anything bad on your computer? Olga, no. Hmm, well, um, nah, not too many. No, no. A search of both their homes, however, finds several lots of incriminating uh-huh. evidence. Goal A kept a meticulous record of all of the life insurance policies with everything labelled and in order. It also becomes super clear that the two women do not trust each other at all, with several policies on the men either taken out in only one of their names or one of the women having contacted the insurance company to have the other removed. An envelope found in Rudder Schmidt's apartment, meanwhile, contained photocopies of a driver's license belonging to a Hilary Adler, a woman who was a member of the same health club as Keisha Golay, who is Helen's daughter. Years earlier, Adler had reported her purse stolen from a locker. The vehicle that killed McDavid, a Mercury Sable was at the time registered in Adler's name. Oh, shit. In court, a car dealer identifies Rudder Schmidt as the buyer of the Sable. She'd given him Adler's ID, saying the car was a gift.
1: Wow. Okay.
0: The same car was towed by AAA the night of McDavid's death, only a block away from where he was killed. Gole had told the truck driver she'd hit an animal and the fuel line had broke. The car was towed to her house, where police later find the car was abandoned around the corner from her home, and it was towed, impounded, and auctioned off. Once the women are arrested, the car is eventually located, and material found on the bottom of the car is tested and comes back positive DNA match for Kenneth McDavid. On March eighteenth, two 2008, both women are tried for first-degree murder of Paul Vados and Kenneth McDavid. They both plead non-guilty, however, due to the recordings from the interrogation room, And their complete opposite and inconsistent defense strategies, mainly including just essentially trying to blame the other, they found guilty just over three weeks later and sentenced to life in prison with parole. One last interesting fact was the one that got away. So after their arrest, a man called Jimmy Covington comes forward and tells police that in 2001 he had been homeless and was approached by Olga Rudishmet with the promise of a warm place to stay, provided he filled out some paperwork. Soon he meets the woman who's li- who owns the apartment that he is going to be staying at, Helen Golay. Over the next week, Rudishmet returns several times to the apartment, repeatedly. And growing angrier and angrier that he still hasn't filled out the paperwork she's given him and provided his personal information. Scared and freaked out by their behavior, he abandons the keys and leaves the apartment. Now aged 89 and 87, Helen Golay and Olga rutter are serving their sentences in the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, and they're both expected to die in prison.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you can imagine. Wow. Man, that is so bizarre. So they're like in their 60s and 70s around about during their arrest. Yeah. I believe. Far out, man. That's intense. Yeah. I see what you mean, the whole Hollywood aspect of it. It's like, it just sounds like it's a fucking movie. It sounds
0: like Ocean's Eleven or something. Yeah, or something
1: something bizarre. Just, yeah. Oh my God.
0: And the son of the lawyer of Olga Rutter-Schmidt, he actually went to, well, he tried to go to prison to speak to both of them. Mm. Initially, um, I believe Helen Gollet denied an interview opportunity saying that she had a memoir that was being penned so she couldn't talk to anyone else. That then changed and she said she would grant him an interview provided he wire-transferred $250,000 to her daughter, to which he said... Thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. See you later. And Olga rudderschmidt did allow him to go to prison and talk to her and basically just thinks that Helen was the perpetrator and like she's innocent and basically just tries to deny any involvement in the case. Yeah. And they're both just essentially still trying to con people into helping them. Yeah, of course. You know old yeah. dogs can't
1: learn new tricks no i mean and at this point they're very old dogs with the same old tricks how how are you going to you know, rehabilitate these people they've yeah, been doing exactly. this stuff their entire lives and they're in they're in their 80s at this point yeah There's there's no turning back from that um do you uh, you probably don't know this but do you know if if they're in the same prison together um or if they're in separate prisons
0: I think they're both in the same prison.
1: Yeah, because I, I, how interesting would that be? That they've like tried to spin it on each other, like it's not me, it's her. But <laughs> you've confessed that, and now you have to serve a prison sentence with that person, yeah. for the rest of your life. Like,
0: I could be incorrect, but as far as I know, they are in the right. same facility.
1: Interesting. Mm. Very, very interesting.
0: So yeah, I've always been kind of fascinated by. That story, just these two, you know, kind of ballsy women. At this, at the start, it's kind of innocent enough, you know, they dress up and break into mm. these fancy hotels and like pilfer people's jean pockets. But it, yeah, it's a big escalation from that to murdering. Yeah, people. and it's a
1: very interesting thing because it's not murdering for any other reason other than. Money. Um, money incentive.
0: Yeah. And there was um I didn't want to include this because the information I found across various articles was pretty kind of inconsistent and patchy, but there allegedly Helen and her daughter at one point were taking care of a family friend or a family relative um who they took out life insurance policies for. And in a genuine accident, he walked into traffic and was killed. And so they got all this payout. Oh, and so a lot of people suspect that they well, then go, realized that, oh, we can trick these vulnerable men sense. into trusting us, take out life insurance policies. And they would generally stick to policies that had relatively small payouts and you would only ever have to speak to people over the phone. Mm. You wouldn't really have to go face-to-face so and they'll recognize
1: anyone. you and everything. Yeah.
0: And when they searched the home, they also found, like, wax stamps that they'd made of the men's oh. signatures so they wouldn't even have to try and replicate it. They wow. could literally just dip it in and stamp it. Far out. It. Yeah. So they had it down to a fine art.
1: Yeah. It's just so I mean, interesting to think that you have these skills and this, like, this sense of this driving force of, like, seeing it through, that it's like, how do you not apply that to something else? Like, it's such a weird, frivolous thing to get involved in and to to get behind. But,
0: like, these women do really look like not the nicest women. Like, they look like they would be ones that would, like... I'm guessing
1: the one on the right's Olga.
0: ...pinch children's arms. Yes, I believe the one on the left is Helen and the one on the right is Olga. Yeah, I believe.
1: Just the one on the right looks like an olga. Yeah.
0: Wow.
1: Well, they yeah, just they look don't like, look um,
0: friendly, do they?
1: They look like witches.
0: Yeah. Like, if
1: I was to imagine a movie with a bunch of witches, you know what it is? What's that, um, the, the Roald Dahl movie? The Witches. The Witches. And when they're pulling off the the yeah. prosthetic mask, they look like that underneath.
0: Yeah. <laughs> But, yeah, just uh, super unpleasant women.
1: Yeah. Jesus. That's a real shame, you know, like to those homeless men, these people who are thinking like their lives are finally turning around or, you know, t- take any hand you can get to try and turn things around and, you know, it ends up that way. Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, yeah, and obviously the Jennifer Pan story is just such a bizarre complex thing you have like something on the out like you both have in these both cases murder for reasons other than the killing yeah the killing isn't the primary focus it's one it's monetary incentive but it's also just trying to get out of a certain lifestyle or a certain life thing happening Yeah, for Jennifer getting out of her like you'd think any rational human being would think I would just move out of my house Get a job. Yeah. Move in with my boyfriend, maybe. Like, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, he must have been very frustrated.
1: The, the boyfriend. boyfriend. Oh, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, but he wasn't a very well put together guy. He he, he obviously is in prison as well for conspiring to murder um, Jennifer's parents. But he, he's... Um, and we'll go into that in Shake and Not Stir because... The author author of the article that I uh, was using most of my information from actually went to visit him in prison. Oh, wow. And she talked with him and had a discussion because she was actually good friends with Daniel, the boyfriend. Oh,
0: that's super interesting. Yeah.
1: So, she like reconnected with him and then soon after that first interview, he cut off all like communication to her. It's really interesting. Hmm, I wonder why. Yeah. We'll go into that a bit on the episode because it's it's one of those things, it's just interesting and- you know, he's not a very well put together guy. So I don't think you can really, you know, woe is me for him.
0: No, I'm not. I just like, I mean, before he got involved in murder, I imagine it would be so frustrating. As a boyfriend, you'd be like, just fucking move out. Yeah, like- yeah
1: for sure. But, you know, he had a girl apparently outside of her and went back to her at some point. So, you know, there's that. Mm. Wasn't obviously that hard for him. But um, yeah, he was a he was a, a drug dealer. He oh. he, uh, he did. Um, well, there you go. He was not actually exactly actually was charged soon. at some point Seriously. with. Um, I think it was selling marijuana.
0: Oh, that's fine. Yeah, a little bit pot never killed Legal anyone. Legal now, yeah. <laughs> you know, blaze it four twenty. Four
1: twenty, blaze it, mate.
0: Well, we saw one of my favorite YouTubers today attempting to replicate an Australian accent. Oh, right. Uh, Makara. I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce her name. Makara Tours. I probably just butchered that. Maybe, yeah. Um, She's a really cool YouTuber. She does like funny sewing tutorials and then like funny weird. Anyway, she was talking about how in... What? My brain just stopped working podcasts. halfway through that sentence. She was talking in a video today about how she listens to a true crime podcast, and it's an Australian true crime podcast, and before she started doing like the accent, we both looked at each other and we were like, oh Hold my up. God. Yeah. <laughs> and then she started talking, and I was like, oh no, that's not... That's what else. We're yeah, we much didn't... less professional sounding than that. Yeah,
1: that was like super professional. Like they had all the details in there without stuttering or having a brain injury. I think it
0: might have been True Crime Island, which is an excellent Australian true crime show. If you... It's just one dude.
1: Oh, that fucker.
0: If you... He's really lovely.
1: I'm sure he is, but, you know, his competition. He's so. competition. Yeah. He's not welcome in our household.
0: Yes, he is. Okay,
1: you are fine. Whatever. We can team up, I guess.
0: But uh, do you want to challenge me to do something in an accent? I feel left out now.
1: Uh, do, yes. give, give uh, Read back a coffee order in a French accent.
0: I can't do French.
1: Read back a coffee order in a British accent.
0: Read back? What do you mean? Yeah,
1: like, like as if you're reading back a coffee order that someone just put through.
0: So give me a coffee order and I'll...
1: Soy flat white and a banana bread.
0: I feel like everyone's with
1: gonna milk with yeah, with sugar. What soy flat white with, with sugar. sugar and a banana bread with butter?
0: <laughs> so much pressure, I don't want to now. I'm scared. <laughs> yeah,
1: no. See what I mean.
0: Uh, okay, so that was a soy flat white, um, and then you wanted a piece of banana bread. And then you wanted a sugar with your coffee. Is that right?
1: That's correct.
0: That wasn't too bad. It's positively splendid. Perfectly splendid. That's it. Like, yeah. You keep saying positive. I know.
1: Well, it just feels like a positively th- moment.
0: Perfectly splendid. That wasn't bad. That was pretty mm, good. I didn't enjoy it. Wait, are you talking about the accent your or the action. show? Your I was, was talking about was the show. Good. What's the show? We tried to watch the house. No. Yeah. The house at Bly Manor. Yes. No, The Haunting of Bly haunting Manor. The Haunting of Bly Manor. We got, like, one episode and neither of us were that enthralled by it. It just didn't... I don't know. It didn't...
1: Yeah. I mean, to be fair, there's been shows where it's, like, the first episode isn't as great and then you get into it. Like, I but think I remember just... some people talking about just... Game of Thrones' first episode and yeah. they're like, oh, I'm not really that...
0: Everyone tells me that you have to like stick it out with shits Creek. I don't, yeah, I don't. I don't want to. It, I really I hated don't want it to. So much. I've never disliked a show so much.
1: It's one of those shows where it's like, all right, so it's like a sitcom-based show that feels like they're waiting for a laugh track, but there's no laugh track. Mm. So you're kind of like, oh, okay, so this thing's happening, and oh, that's interesting, and yeah, I didn't right. dig it. Did it's, not it's, dig it. Yeah, it's just kinda like it has the whole premise of the office where it's like there's camera like, you know, they're following the day to day of like these people's lives, but I don't really find them that interesting or you know yeah, it relatable. Just,
0: it uh it didn't do it for me. Sorry. And I know that there's people who are like
1: mm, that live and breathe poor yeah.
0: fans. I think it's and also I just, just don't like it.
1: It's hard to get into the get behind a show where it's like rich people losing their fortune and then doing poor people things. It's like, oh, I get it, because, you know, they're relatable characters that we can put ourselves in their shoes yeah. with. I
0: don't know. Anyway, I just couldn't... I also think it was hyped up way too oh, much yeah, for me. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was just bound to fail just from that alone. I think when it honest. shows,
1: like... If people are like with the show, I'll oh, just keep watching. It gets better and better the more you I watch don't it. I want to keep watching. Do that. I don't
0: have enough time in my day exactly. to watch something that I don't enjoy. That's
1: like saying, "Oh, the Batwoman gets good eventually." Like if you just keep watching it or anything. That's I mean- like
0: saying, "Just stick it out in that relationship. The sex gets better yeah. after eight months." <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I tried that, and it's been four and a half years, and it's not improved. Oh, wow! <laughs> fucking hell!
1: Holy shit!
0: I'm kidding. Outed
1: like a motherfucker. I'm
0: kidding, kidding, and Josh. I jest.
1: You jest. I jest. I jest. Perfectly you jest what?
0: jesting.
1: You jest what?
0: I just want you to shut up.
1: Oh, <laughs> wow! This is the attack. <laughs> this is the attack armor episode.
0: I feel like it always gets there somehow. It always the does. Yeah.
1: The um. Yeah. If you want to hear us do more accents, we'll do. Um. We'll do them. We'll do them. I feel them like for there's you.
0: probably a game you could do. I just, I'm terrible at accents.
1: I think there is, like, games like that where it's, like, describe this thing and then accent. Um, I, I, feel, I feel like there is. It's, like, oh, you know what? It, it, I think it's similar to the Ellen game where it's, like, the... the the Heads up. Heads up. It's yeah. kind of like that, but you do things in an accent. So, I know with heads up, it's, like, do an impression of this person. Mm. And it's like Christopher Walken, and, and okay, you do
0: a very good Christopher Walken so, and Michael Caine impersonation.
1: Yeah, the Michael, I love the Michael Caine one. Um, from from the 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 best scene in the trip is the two um, the two guys just comparing their Michael Caine impressions with each other. Fucking it's like, it's so quotable.
0: But yeah, you're um, Christopher Walken.
1: Yeah. Wow. This man—he stabbed his wife, and was bad. But don't don't feel bad for the man. He's psychologically traumatized from the war. It's good
0: stuff. Little it's man. good stuff. I can't impersonate dead. anyone. Yeah, I can't do. Accents. I met someone the
1: other day, and their first impression of me was me doing a Christopher Walken impression followed by a Gilbert Godfrey impression.
0: Oh, yeah, you're not bad at that one as well.
1: <laughs> so I'm in this pub just doing the
0: WHAT'S WITH THE LEMONS?
1: just oh, sc- at the top of my lungs and yeah, it oh, was dear.
0: a... Oh, When was that?
1: Oh, it was like a little while ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was
0: like, you haven't gone anywhere without me recently and I feel mm. like I would remember
1: that. Um, But it was a great first impression to give people. If I meet you... For the first time, I'll probably do something equally embarrassing. But I feel like it's a good point of reference to... to Look,
0: you want to start low and then go up. You never want to start with too good of an impression because you can only go down from there. I vote, come in, have very low expectations or rather make everyone have very low expectations of you and then the next time they meet you, it's only up. Did that make sense?
1: Sure. <laughs> Speaking of low expectations.
0: Yes. Well, I don't have anything else to say.
1: Neither. I think that's kind of it. I'm um, actually
0: really tired. I'm not going to lie.
1: Yeah. This has been a bit of a more lax episode because it's been a bit of a shit week in terms I of think getting... it, I
0: think we both did an excellent job with our cases.
1: Yeah. No. I mean, I just more so mean like, you know, you're catching us in a a time where we've tried to salvage an episode that- doesn't exist anymore, and um, researching several cases to compensate for it, and we're preparing for a Halloween special, which is great, but it's also equally, um, you know, um, what's what's the word? Stressful, I guess.
0: It's going to be a good episode, though. I'm excited. Yeah,
1: it's going to be fantastic.
0: It's going to be spooky. Yeah, very
1: spooky. We'll probably set up a little atmospheric thing in the room so we can get into the vibe. Yeah.
0: Can we play absolutely. like atmospheric Halloween music underneath the entire thing? Sure.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Dun, dun, we could do
0: that.
1: It's just a, uh, a a sample, like a re. Um, it's just a loop of like really bad banjo playing.
0: Why banjo?
1: I don't know. Just something obscure to really put people off. Okay. Or the strings from Halloween.
0: How does that go again?
1: Like the the melody, like oh fuck! How does it go? Um,
0: All I can think of when anyone talks about Halloween is the scene, the glasses, when <laughs> yeah. he's got the sheet on his head and the glasses, and it. The first time I saw it, I don't think I've ever laughed so hard at something in my entire life because I was like, "What?
1: Yeah, what is going on?" So he's a mentally deranged killer, and he's wearing a sheet with glasses. It's like, what the fuck is happening in there?
0: Yeah. Anyway.
1: Yeah, anyway. I guess that's it. That's Um, it for
0: another episode of Best Served Cold, I think. Yeah. I think. Tune in on Wednesday for our Halloween special. And on Friday for Shaken Not Stirred. And then hopefully after that, we'll be back on our normal schedule.
1: Normal agenda.
0: And we won't miss any more weeks.
1: Yeah. Fingers crossed. Hopefully nothing goes wrong with any of our future recordings.
0: Yeah. I'm sure it will, but... Yeah. Yeah. If we could, you know, not have it happen multiple... That would be great. That would would be be
1: lovely. Um, We have merch, as we mentioned, coming out soon. Keep an eye out for that on our socials. Whoop, whoop. Our socials are at the BSC podcast on all things social... Hit us up with a six degrees of separation story. Doesn't have to be, you know, uh, anything crazy. It can be, you you know, met someone who was a robber, or you know, you know someone who, you know, stole falsified documents. Something interesting, though. You can, you want to bring it up in our show and have Something a little
0: left of field. Yeah,
1: yeah. Just if you want to bring it up and and be a part of the show. Um. And obviously, hit us up any cases. We've had a few people hit us up with um interesting cases to cover, and we'll be looking into them. And you know, obviously, adding them to the queue of many, many different cases to cover. Um, and with that, with that out of the way, Boom. I think that's, that's kind of, the show. That's it.
0: The keyword, keyword, keyword. code, code word, code word for this week is parmesana.
1: Parmigiana. Ooh, parmigiana.
0: Parmigiana, that's the code word for this Is parmigiana
1: week. a thing outside of, like... Uh, yeah, I think so. A chicken parmigiana. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess A, let us know if that's a thing outside of Australia, because I actually don't know. Uh, and B, hit us up with the word, parmigiana.
0: Thank you for tuning in. Uh, sorry that last week was a bit of a mess around, but... Yeah. Hopefully we'll be right back on schedule. Yes. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you on Wednesday.
1: Bye. Bye.